Let's pray. Dear Lord, high and lifted up, we come to you in meekness and humility. And I ask that you give me grace to speak your word clearly in spirit and in truth. And make these people a receptive audience for your word. We pray for your help that we might have ears to hear, hearts to feel, minds to understand, feet to follow, wills to obey. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be reading from the book of Exodus tonight, Exodus chapter 19, continuing our series through this book. Tonight we come to verses 7 through 15, Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 15. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Exodus is a great story. Many of us uh, have learned it since we were little kids and we love the many stories and can picture in our heads many of the great moments of redemptive history. It's a story about a great God. Exodus is about the God who makes himself known. It's also about the God who makes his law known. And we are coming to that moment soon in chapter 20. In other words, Exodus tells us the answer to the question, who is he? And then who are we? And what are we to be like? What does it mean for us as his treasured possession to follow this great God of Sinai. We don't know who God is unless God reveals himself to us. Left to our own devices, we won't know who God is, what he is like, or how we should approach him. This may sound very simple, very straightforward, but I think if we talk to most people in our orbits, we would find that the assumption is just the opposite. Most people assume, maybe some of us came in with this assumption, that we pretty well can figure out who God is, what he's like, what it means to follow him, all on our own. But the storyline of the scripture is that since the fall, we, we may see certain things about his, 
his attributes and his power in the works of creation. But in order to know him as he truly is, to follow him, to be saved by him, we need God to tell us about God. Still, you find in our culture that most people, the studies are 85, 90, 95%, depending on the survey you look at. The vast majority of people in this country still say they believe in God. It may be different in other parts of the world and places in Eastern Europe, but here, the vast majority of people that you come in contact with will say, I believe in God. Do they really know the God of the Bible? Or do you hear this sort of phrase all the time from your friends? Perhaps you see it on social media or Facebook. You, you probably, if you were paying attention this week to some of the things going on with the Nashville statement and all of the, the noise around that, you may have heard or seen phrases like this. The God that I worship would never, usually is fill in the blank with what you think or the people that you like or the things that you can't imagine. The God that I know would never be like this. Someone once said that God began by creating us in his image and we have been returning the favor ever since. Creating God in our image, what we want him to be like. But really, if we stop to think about it, what does it matter the God I worship, what he is like, or the God you worship, what he or she or it or they are like, unless that's what God is really like? But when people talk about God, they often just have a sort of general nebulous sense that there is some great higher power and he helps us and he wants us to be good people. And you may find in your conversations when you even say to people, you try to talk about God and they may say, I don't believe in God. If you were to press a little bit farther, you might find, you know what? I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in either because they have a completely different characterization Of this God. Think of how God is presented. Now, it's not really God, but in the character of the Oz, the great and powerful Oz in that book or that movie, you think of how many people view God in that way. God is perhaps unapproachable. Remember, they come to Oz and they are quaking in fear. He's just an impersonal power who's just has them all cowering, searching for their courage as they come to him. And you notice in that story, which I don't know was meant to be a a picture of God or not, but they have to find their way. There is no, the Oz does not come to them. The Oz does not reach down and tell them the way to go. They have to find their own way to God. And then when they do, he is this vast, impersonal being, who, it turns out, don't mean to ruin the movie, but turns out to be a fraud. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He is a weak little man, deserving of rebuke. And some people, they think of God, they think of that sort of God. Or perhaps they think of the God of unconditional affirmation. You must realize that when most people in our culture use the word love, The operating definition, love equals unconditional affirmation. Unconditional affirmation. Which is different 
than the Bible's understanding of love. So when people say, the Bible says God is love, and we all want to say, yes, amen, God is love. Jesus said, love your neighbors, yes. He said, love your enemies, yes. The operating definition in our world of love is unconditional affirmation. That God doesn't tell me no. He tells me that he likes me, that he's for me, that whatever I do, whatever I choose, he's okay with. Now, of course, that's a self-defeating worldview because you don't have to press very far to find that, well, but he's not, he's not tolerant of intolerance and he, he, he doesn't like sexism or racism or, or any of these other phobias or any other sort of ism. So it's a, it's a God that turns out who has a lot of standards. But when it comes to our own particular sins, and we are guilty of this in the church as well as anyone, we often remake God in the image of one who is against All of the things that other people struggle with and not so much the things that I'm dealing with. So who is this God? We aren't going to be effective in our witness. We aren't going to be very transformative in our worship if we don't really know the God that we owe an account to, the God that we're worshiping. Who is the real God? Let me give you two statements. Both of them are absolutely necessary if we are to understand what God is like according to the Bible. If you want to make up God of your own choosing, you can go and do that. If you want to call yourself a Christian and come under the authority of the Bible, then we have to say, what does the Bible say about this God? Here are two statements which are absolutely true, and both of them must be held at the same time. Number one, God is a God who condescends in coming near to us. Second statement. But we must never be casual in coming near to him. Both of those statements are true. We worship a God, according to the Bible, who condescends in coming near to us, but we must never be casual in coming near to him. Let me explain what I mean. The word condescend, I don't mean patronize. Someone says, well, you're so condescending. You look down your nose at someone. You put someone down. No, the word condescend means to stoop, to descend, to lower oneself, to place oneself below your deserved level of importance. That's what God does. He condescends. He comes down to be near to us. Those who are so far beneath him that we would have no access to him unless he were to come down. Let me explain the second phrase, that word casual. Do not mean simply informal, not thinking of the sort of clothes that you wear, but rather an approach to God that is careless, offhanded, without serious intention, indifferent, apathetic, unconcerned, flippant, nonchalant. God condescends to be near to us, but we must never be casual in drawing near to him. Let's look at both of those statements, unpack them a bit from Exodus 19. So our God, according to the Bible, condescends in coming near to us. How do we see this condescension? Well, we see it here in that he speaks. This is, this is so obvious that we can miss it all over scripture. God speaks to us. He speaks in Exodus to Moses. He speaks through Moses to the people we have here in verses 7 through 15, this conversation that the God of the universe is talking to Moses. 
how did it happen? Was it internal? Was, you know, th- there was some audible voice that they were afraid to hear. There was a conversation. He was speaking. Have you ever stopped to think how amazing it is that we have a God who speaks? He, he does not dwell in a mysterious cloud of unknowing as if we have no access. He speaks to us. Some of you may have come across at one time or another this little poem. It's uh, many generations old by now. It's called The Six Blind Men and the Elephant. And in this little poem, you have six blind men, and they're all sort of trying to understand what what they're feeling. And so one touches the side of the elephant. He says, it's a wall. Another grabs an ear and says, it's a fan. Another pulls his trunk and says, it's a a rope and so on. And the point of the little poem is this is what we're all like with God. This is what we're like with religion. We're just six blind men with an elephant. And we all are just sort of groping around in blindness. And we all think that we really know what God is like. But we're just blind and we all are just sort of feeling our way around. It's not a very impressive poem, but it is a a sort of attractive worldview to many people. Isn't that true? We're just all blind men and an elephant. There's two big problems with that analogy. One, the whole story is told from the viewpoint of omniscience. That is, there is someone who stands outside and can understand correctly what's going on. But be that as it may as a philosophical problem, here's the even bigger concern for us as Christians and why that little poem doesn't work. What if... The elephant speaks. What if the elephant speaks and he says, I'm an elephant. And you say, no, 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 I think you're a wall. I'm an elephant. No, you're, you're like a, you're like a paradox, man. No, uh, I'm an elephant. Now at that point, if you continue to insist that the elephant is not an elephant, Is that because you are humble or because you are hard of hearing? Because our world mistakes it for humility. You don't know anything. The famous line from G.K. Chesterton 100 years ago, he said, we we have put humility in the wrong place. We have put it on the organ of knowledge instead of the organ of ambition. He said, we are in danger of making a race of men too meager to believe in the multiplication tables. God speaks. When, when Paul came to Athens and he said, I see you have a statue here to an unknown God. Some people would, would make us think that Paul should have said, that's great. I also have an unknown God. I also am just, I, I also don't know. We can all just not know things together. But of course, it's not what Paul said. He said, well, you worship as unknown. I will declare to you. Let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you about the son that he has sent and his life and death and resurrection. We have a God who has spoken. We see it here, the foot of the mountain, that God condescends to speak to Moses and to the people. He not only speaks, he supports. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses, in this initial conversation with God, says, look, people aren't going to listen to me. They're not going to... Take me at my word. They're not going to think that I have anything to say. I'm not very good at speaking. Well, now we see the answer to this problem. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, they don't hold to that very long, but at least at this moment, they say, yes, Moses, we know that you speak for God. 
He comes as Moses' authentication to say, he speaks for me. Listen to this man. Listen to him. He, he condescends to speak to us. He condescends to support Moses in the effort. And he condescends to show up. Look at verse 11. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. It will be a theophany. It's a fancy word. It means a God appearing. It won't come down as a person, but as a series of sounds and sights and lightning and flashes and colors and smoke. But he shows up. When God visits the language of scripture, he he always comes down. He comes down. Have you ever thought about this with the, the connection to the Tower of Babel? Remember, they're trying to build this tower that reaches all the way up in, into the heavens, and they're going to be really important. And it can seem like a strange story, like maybe God is confused and concerned by these people because he spreads them out and he scatters their languages. Maybe God was feeling threatened. But when you actually understand what's going on, it's, it's ironic and somewhat humorous because they are building a tower up to heaven. And you remember what it says? The Lord says, let us come down to see what they're doing. They think we're making it to heaven. And God says, well, whether it's to, you know, the Trinitarian council or the, the angels, would you, would you come down? Would you, would you look at that little tower? I can't quite see that. Can you see that thing coming all the way up here? He's, he has to come down to see it. Just as you look down and, and you can see the, the ants scurrying about of all the new creatures here. The worst, I'm just going on record, are the fire ants, okay? I'm just saying that right now they are the worst. And we have a big mound of them. And so we know not to uh, stick your feet in those kind of ants. But other normal, nice ants, you sort of look at them and they're all so busy and making their little homes. And do. And when you're just feeling a little bit maniacal, don't you just take your foot and go, and, you just, and they just go right back at it. They're just busy, busy, busy. And maybe their ants are feeling so impressive. Look at what we've done. We've made our little hill and you just stand above there and you have to get down and you can wipe it away with just a brush of your foot. The Lord has to come down even to see our most impressive achievements and towers. Now, we will get an even better picture of this theophany next week. What an amazing thing it is that A God this grand would move into their neighborhood. And by the Lord's providence, we are going to be tracking with John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us at the same time as God is speaking his word and coming down on Mount Sinai. And you will see what an amazing thing it is that this God would seek to be among us. As I said this morning, we would all be excited if there was some famous athlete or movie star or someone who moved into our neighborhood. But you think about it, if they moved into our neighborhood, your neighborhood, they, they, would, they would have something to, to gain from it. They, they want that house or they want that piece of land or they want you know, safety. They have something to gain. But God comes down needing nothing. He's not like a, a politician who comes to dwell among the people because it makes a nice photo op and can shake hands. Not running for any office. God isn't up for election. 
He doesn't need a PR spin machine. He isn't looking for a nice photo op to put on social media. He's not trying a marketing ploy. He does not need to be near us, and yet he condescends and draws near to us because he is our God and we are his people. It's, it's the, the thread, that brilliant covenant promise from the garden to the new Jerusalem in Revelation. I will be a God to you and you will be my people. It is in that transcendence of God that his imminence is made so powerful that this great, majestic God would come down. The God here of the plagues, the God of the Red Sea, the God of the miracles, the God who hardened Pharaoh's heart, this God now says, wait, and I'll show up, and I'll meet with you, I condescend to draw near to you because you're my people. That's the first statement. We must know about God. He condescends to be near to us. But here's the second statement. You need both of them. We must never be casual in coming near to him. We aren't talking about attire, but about attitude. Ecclesiastes 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Yes, we want to cultivate a closeness in prayer. Some of us can be so fearful, so nervous, we're going to say the wrong words, that we don't dare to say anything in prayer. That's a danger. Mark it well. Intimacy with God must never be confused for flippancy with God. Kids, kids, some kids here, when you pray, when you pray at night before you go to bed, when mom and dad picks one of you to pray around the dinner table, and usually if if we pick one, the one we pick, oh, I didn't want to, and the one we didn't pick, oh, why can't I pray? You never get it right. When mom and dad ask you to pray at night or in the morning, we want you to pray your own words. We want you to know that you have a heavenly father who loves to listen. But we also want you to know, and all of us big people need to be reminded too, that doesn't mean we come to God flippantly, casually. Here's a trick question it could put on on a theological test. When we pray... And we come into God's presence. Is it the living room or is it the throne room? Living room or throne room? (laughs) This this is the great wonder of Christianity is you have to say in some sense it's both. He's your heavenly father. You've been given a right to be called children of God. And where do you meet with your heavenly father? You meet in the living room. A place of communion, a place of familiarity, a place with intimacy, a place of trust, a place where you're not fearful that you'll be cast out. Yet, if that's the only image, we don't really understand what it means to have God as our Heavenly Father. For it is also a throne room. And He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. And if we could see Him in the train of His robe, filling His temple, as Isaiah did, we too would say, Woe is me! For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He is our Creator. He is our King. So we do not approach Him 
casually. The seriousness of being in God's presence is indicated here by three signs. First, verse 9, you see the cloud. There's a, a cloud, and this will follow them, lead them. Here it, it gives a sense of awe, weightiness. We often want to penetrate the bounds set for us. We want to peer into ineffable mysteries. It is at times a longing for an unlawful knowledge. We sometimes want to capture this cloud. Think of Deuteronomy 29, 29, that famous verse that the secret things of our God belong to him, but the things he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are things that God has told us about God, and then there are things that he says are only reserved for God to know about God. We can know God truly, but we never know God exhaustively. So we have the cloud. The second sign is the distance. Verse 12, you shall set limits for all the people around. So there's a a physical distance representing that this is not a God that you just sort of waltz your way and mosey on in and say, hi God, I'm home. He's not that sort of God. There's a cloud in verse 9. There's distance in verse 12. And then you see most strikingly is the threat of death. Verse 13, no hand shall touch him. This is even whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. And you can't even touch the person who touches the mountain. He'll be killed with stones or shot, not with a gun, but with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. You think of the examples in the Bible, Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus 10 offering unauthorized fire. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, they approached God in a way that God did not want to be approached as God. Or the famous story of Uzzah who reached out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant as it was falling to the ground and God would strike him dead on the spot. How many of us haven't thought that seems a little extreme? And you've probably heard R.C. Sproul's wonderful striking explanation. He said the great sin of Uzzah was to think that his hand would somehow be less impure than the ground to which the Ark was about to fall. It's the holiness of our God. And it will sound harsh to a world that is used to a God of Santa Claus and candy canes. But it is necessary to reorient our world. Every single one of us, every one of us, without fail, underestimates the holiness of God. He is not a God to be trifled with. We live in an age where there are are almost no sacred things anymore. No holy places. no, No places of sacred, hallowed ground. I remember if you, you saw this in the news a year or two ago when all the people were going around playing this Pokemon Go game. If you don't know what it is, it's okay. But you you play this game on your phone and you have to capture imaginary creatures that your phone places in different places around the world. It's confusing. But they, uh, in fact, a few, soon after I got here, uh, it was one night and I was leaving here and there was a whole bunch of 
young people, 20-somethings, standing around here in the parking lot. And I thought, well, I'm here. I don't know anybody, but surely they're here from Christ's covenant. I don't know them. I'm going to go introduce myself. They were all standing like this, heads down, looked to be praying in a circle. And I came to introduce myself. And, they, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm um, Kevin DeYoung. I'm the new senior pastor here. Do you go to Christ's covenant? They said, no, we don't go to Christ's covenant. This is a pokey gym. And we are playing Pokemon Go because they often put these characters in churches. So I'd like to say I won them all to the Lord, but I didn't. But here they were. If you saw the news story, it was places like churches were, were wondering what to do with this. And the story that got my attention was people were playing Pokemon Go at the Holocaust Museum. And they had to find a way. How, how, how do we explain there, there are some things in life that don't belong there? And that's one of them. You would think there would be a sense that what we're remembering here is of such gravity. So sober are these reminders that you would not come in here to play your cartoon game on your phone. And if all of us can instinctively groan at that sort of casual carelessness, how much more how we might just come into the presence of God Almighty. Here I am, God. You ought to be so happy to hear from me. It doesn't matter what I do, what I'm like. Here I am. We see here, they were to be shot with an arrow. They were to be killed with stones. You do not touch the holy mountain of God. And if you touch one who touched the mountain, they're to be killed as well. So what do we do? God gives Moses instructions to be consecrated, to consecrate the people. That is to set them apart. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God to be consecrated, set apart. They must do a few things. One, they must wash their garments, which may seem relatively easy to us, and you stick it in the laundry, but this would have been a laborious process. Remember, they don't have much water nearby. The only water they may have may be gushing forth from this rock, and you have a couple million people who need to wash their garments, so this is a big deal. And then in verse 15... Verse 14, they wash their garments. Verse 15, it ends with that strange phrase, do not go near a woman. It's phrased that way because the assumed audience were men who would be listening to this. So speaking of men not to go near a woman, surely thinking of sexual relations. Now the idea is not that to have sex is bad or somehow stains you or makes you Unclean, but it's similar to the idea that is found in 1 Corinthians 7 5, where Paul says, You may abstain for a time that you would devote yourself to prayer or to some special focus. It, it was at a time what they would do to say, We are setting ourselves apart, free from any sort of distraction, that we might be absolutely resolved to this purpose. You think of Uriah the Hittite whom David killed, and when he came in, and David was hoping that he would go and lay with his wife so they wouldn't know that the child was David's, but Uriah said, I can't do that. My men are at battle. How could I do such a thing? 
not because it was wrong to be with your wife, but he says, in this moment of battle, in this moment of intense focus, I must keep myself from women. And so these are symbolic acts, not that they in themselves would make one free from sin, but they were symbolic ritual acts of purity, of consecration. The goal was to keep yourself from what was objectionable and to keep yourself from what is distractible. The point, the point in all of this is to approach God is a matter of the utmost seriousness. This is not a man-made God to be carried around or carved or manipulated. To worship God as God is to understand that God gets to call the shots on how God wants to be worshipped. And it shows here that life with God is a life with divinely placed restrictions. This is what, what many of us do not want to hear. We think life with God is God empowers me to do everything I've ever wanted to do, everything I've ever had a desire to do. If God is really love, he affirms me in all my desires and he just helps me to make my dreams come true. Here we see this is a good God. He is a great God. And he condescends to come near to you. And because he is so good and is so great, to come into the presence of this God means by necessity boundaries. You do not come to this God on your own. There are divinely placed restrictions. Here they were literal boundaries. You must not get that close to the mountain lest you touch the mountain and you die. Life with God is a life with divinely placed restrictions, placed there for our good. Imagine how the boundaries and the danger would have made friends and relatives vigilant. We may think, well, that's very harsh. I don't really like, is this just the God of the Old Testament? Can we get a a cheerier God in the New Testament? No. And think of what they were learning by these boundaries. They were learning to accept their own smallness, their own unworthiness. They were learning to accept that this is a universe that I inhabit where God is the center and not me. And that's what most of us at the end of the day find most distasteful about God is that God understands himself to be God, which means you and I are not. They would come to appreciate not just the holiness of God, but their privileged position as the only people of all the peoples of the earth who were chosen to to come near and approach the foot of the mountain. Because God, who makes these restrictions, is a God who makes a way for his people to come. You see here, the answer to the problem of a dangerous God is not to flee, but to come carefully. To come carefully and to come on his terms. This is a God who cannot be approached lightly, but he will make a way for you to approach him. Most of us do not begin to have an idea of God like God. The God of the Bible is frightening and fascinating, dangerous, delightful, holy, happy, Like skydiving, which I haven't done, or rock climbing, which I don't do, or swimming with sharks, or bungee jumping. You just 
this is amazing. This is big. This is fearful. This is this fascinating. So I don't do any of those really cool things. This is the best illustration I have. Uh, there's a water park that that we took our kids to a couple of times. And in this water park, you know, there's all these big slides. Well, there's there's one chute where you stand in this... This, it looks like this space-age kind of hyperbaric chamber, and you stand like this, and you just see, you know, there, you can see the tube. It takes like eight seconds to get all the way down, but you can see it just drops. And so you go in there, and there's a little voice, and of course it's in a British accent, so it sounds just a little kind of imperial or something. Three, two, one. And then, and then the floor drops out. Well, of course, after some of my kids did it, Dad, you got to do it. Once you get my pride engaged, then a lot of silly things happen. So I did it, and you're, you're standing there at that moment, and you know the, the floor is dropping out, and you're going to drop down, and you hope there's water, and you slide all the way to safety, and, and, and you're in there, and then you have all the little eight-year-olds who are braver than you who are watching this grown man. If, if you're going to do it, and everyone's watching you, and you're trying to act like you do this all the time, it's, it's that moment of, this is exhilarating, this is fearful, can't believe I'm going to do this, I want to do this, I'm not sure I should do this, but here I am, I'm going to do it, and I hope it's okay. A little bit, a little bit, imperfect of course. What it is, when God draws near to us, we draw near to him. There, there's an element of, I, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I can't believe I get to know this God. This God's going to show up. I get to meet this God. I'm not sure about this. And yet I, I, I'm afraid and I'm drawn. And part of me thinks just forget it. But, but a bigger part of me says I have to do this. I have to know what he's like. I have to hear from him. And so you stay. And he comes. And he draws near. At this point, they're just waiting. Lord willing, when we get to it next week, we will see the thunder and the lightning and the thick cloud and the loud trumpets as God descends on the mountain. But here they're waiting. I want you just in closing to notice this phrase in verse 11. And be ready for the third day. Be ready for the third day. It says then, for on the third day, the Lord will come down. It's true, third day is a common phrase occurring some 30 times in the Bible. But I have to think there's, there's, you don't have an event in your history this monumental without having some of these markers stick in your head. Wait for the third day, people. Wait for the third day. Hold on. Something's coming if you can just wait till the third day. Reminds me of perhaps my favorite line from the Lord of the Rings. You can see it in the two towers when Gandalf says, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. Now, it would be better if it was third, but he says fifth. Look for me, wait. There's something coming. The third day. Of course, here in Exodus, it's three days and he'll come down. And we know on the other side of the cross, you wait three days, three days, and he'll get up. 
three days. Just wait. Just wait. God's not done. We see here transcendence and imminence. And we will find it in its fullest expression in the incarnation. This great God coming down on the third day at Sinai and this great God being lifted up on the third day in Jerusalem. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, he comes near to us in Christ. We draw near through Christ, the one mediator between God and man. And so now we know that we do not know this God unless we know him in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, really know God? Do you know how he comes near to us? Do you know how to draw near to him? It is only, always, and forever in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all we learn from the Old Testament saints and from your word. Help us to have a a sense, just a sense of your holiness, of your majesty, that we might know what an amazing gift it is that you have come near to us in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name, amen.